Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. We're snowed in. (laughs) I think this is the first time of the day where the snow's gone vertical. (laughs) But I think most of the day it's been sideways. Uh, 500 years ago, there was a monk in a monastery in the snow, like this, who wrote, uh, Snow, snow, cold, cold, peaceful, peaceful. A part of me hates poems like that, because I feel like I could have written that. Snow, snow, cold, cold, peaceful, peaceful. So how to let your mind be like snow. Touching something. So as Dogen and I said yesterday, um, one of the things you get to really see in this practice is uh, the arrival of grasping and stress, and then the absence of grasping and stress. And Dogen says something further, which is, and just seeing that is enough to arouse bodhicitta, to arouse this thought of awakening. How to have uh, joy and loss, pleasure and pain. And just for them to move through you. Oh, it's sideways again. (laughs) All the stress and the grasping and the joy. And the ability to love each thing and the ability to be loved. So when there's grasping, what also happens... So when we talk about grasping, we all think of it privately. Grasping is just happening inside me. 
Um, this came up a little bit in meetings today. But when when you're grasping, uh, you can't see that you're setting up a wall between you and other people. Because you're like that. So then you, you, you can't perceive uh, what's outside of you very clearly. And that's so hard for other people because then they can't receive you because you're just in here, this bubble. And then you think, why doesn't anybody love me? That's going to be the theme of the retreat next year. Why doesn't anybody love me? (laughs) (laughs) This practice is not hard because you have to wake up early in the morning in the dark. And this practice isn't hard because your back hurts. And the practice isn't hard because there's, you know, old unresolved feelings that are coming to the surface. That's not why the practice is hard. The practice is hard because when you sit down, before you even recognize it, as soon as a thought arises, there's grasping. And you've covered the universe over in your small story. The whole universe is covered in just me, my little stamp. And then you might see into that, which a lot of you are, and also see that there's so much fear in just staying with your breathing and opening up to something other than the grasping. Because our identity is all wrapped up in the grasping, even grasping onto the pain. Because it's comfortable. It's what you know. Dogen says, and I'm going to jump around the text a little bit. I always say I'm going to teach this text, and then it's like, I just can't stay on the topic. Because uh, this text actually has 10 points in the guidelines. And so I said to Karina, oh, I'm going to teach the 10 points, Dogen's 10 points. And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, no, no, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do the whole 10 points. I'm going to do two talks every day. We'll cover the points. And she said, why don't you just do four? And every day, just do one, if you give four talks, you just do one point for each talk. I said, well, that's so brilliant. And she says, yeah, and if you just photocopy the first four, nobody will know there was ten. <laughs> and the other six aren't really as good as the first four anyways. So um, then she asked me, how's it going? Did you, have you covered the four? <laughs> I said, I haven't got to the second one yet. It's the last day. <laughs> She said, what are you going to talk about? I said, I'm still on the first one. (laughs) Dogen says, so that pure practice and the way coincide. So pure practice and the way, the path, coincide. How should we proceed? Proceed with the mind that neither grasps or rejects, 
the mind unconcerned with name and gain, and do not practice with the thought that it's to benefit others. That's a peculiar line, isn't it? Because when, when I mean, anyone who's done any kind of Mahayana training knows. Uh, you're always told, your practice is to benefit all beings. We chant it in the morning. Serve all beings. Yeah. Duncan's saying, don't practice with the thought that it's to benefit other beings. So as soon as you have that thought, you make a self. Can you see that? Oh, I'm going to go help. This is, this is what causes so much burnout in the helping professions. Oh, I've got to help. Imagine if the cooks were in the kitchen always thinking, oh, I've got to uh, feed everybody. And it'd be so stressful. I've got to feed everybody. Does anybody have a, like a grandparent like this? <laughs> like you go to their house for dinner and they're like so freaked out and they can't even eat because they're so stressed out because they've got to feed everybody. And there's always this little heartbreak in the meal because like they can't enjoy the, the meal. And then if that's going on as they age, their cooking for the family just becomes a, a kind of like anxiety Olympics. <laughs> so how to let go of all of the defenses. And if you take care of your mind and heart, your mind and heart will take care of you. So in a way, like some level of practice has nothing to do with you. You think, oh, I'm practicing to save other people. But you could also think, oh, I'm practicing really to benefit me. But actually, like everything you think about your practice doesn't really have anything to do with what's really going on. Have you seen this, this retreat? Like when your mind says, I really like this, and then like, I really don't like this. And like all the flip-flopping back and forth. But underneath all that, you're practicing. Dogen then says, um, Once you see, oh, this is the section two finally. Once you see or hear the true teaching, you should practice it without fail. One phrase offered by a loyal servant can have the power to alter the course of the nation. One word given by a Buddha ancestor cannot fail to turn people's minds. The unwise ruler does not adopt the servant's advice. One who does not step forward cannot accept the Buddha's teaching. If appropriate advice is not heeded, Governing with virtue cannot be realized. So here we have to kind of have a little bit of context, which is actually it's it's actually happening in contemporary life. Is if you go nowadays, and maybe Doug could speak about this one at some point too. If you go nowadays to like a business leadership conference, uh, somebody at that conference is going to quote the Tao Te Ching, 
or like some Chinese text. It's like the hip thing to do. Well, mindfulness is the hippest thing. Mindfulness in neuroscience is the hippest thing. Uh, but if you're like semi-hip, you like quote Chinese texts and you make it about how you can be a better leader in your business. Doug, Doug's nodding. Um, <laughs> so, uh, because in, in the old days in ancient China, the texts uh, very often talked about how to rule a kingdom. And, and some of you have read the Tao Te Ching, you know this. You know, how, to, how to really govern well. And um, that's interesting. <laughs> it's like a meditation machine. Um, so Dogen saying uh, two things. Uh, the the part that's powerful has to be able to listen to the part that has no power. And that's true for uh, society, and it's also true in our own hearts. There's a narrative that's so strong, right? This is like the internalized power structure. So strong. And you can't listen to any other voice. So think about some of those narratives that you have that are so strong. And when they're there, nothing else can get in. And then your practice can't be devotional. Because you're right. It has to be the way I need it to be. It doesn't have that feeling of devotion. And then your bowing gets all stiff. There's a koan I wanted to, to uh, mention. Um, one, of, one of my favorite koans about two characters. Uh, one named Lin Chi, uh, also known as Rinzai, who is the founder of Rinzai Zen uh, line. And um, Lin Chi was really, really fierce. Uh, his main practice was just hitting and yelling. <laughs> um, and the other character is a very old man named Elder Ting I love the name Ting <laughs> Elder Ting uh, frail earnest and had been practicing his whole life uh, we don't see that so much around here um, one of the reasons why our next retreat is at a different retreat center is so that there can be uh, bathrooms in the rooms so that the elderly people who used to come on the retreat can start coming again. Mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, when I was in Japan uh, in one monastery where I was practicing, um, everybody was so old. And if you if you ever spend time in Japan, I know you've spent lots of time in Japan, uh, there's a kind of old person where they're so old, like turtles are like this, where you can't tell how old they are. Like maybe they're 80 or maybe they're 180. <laughs> yeah. So you can picture El Elder Ting. If you ever watch Davy Bao, 
Davy bows like that. I, when, I, when I see Davy bow, I always think, that's exactly how you're going to bow when you're 80. <laughs> um, if you ever watch Peter Levitt bow, uh, he also bows like, really like an old man. I said, Peter, you bow like such an old man. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so here's uh, the, the title of the koan. Let me explain a koan too. A koan can be used as a teaching device uh, where you can hear a koan and if it grabs you, you, you just take it into your heart and you really work with it. But another way of working with a koan is um, just listen to it as a story and you just say to yourself, like, what's cool about this? So like, you hear a story, you just, like, if there's like one line and you say, like, what's cool about this story? And then you just kind of explore it at different angles. So uh, here's the koan. Um, Elder Ting came to practice with Lin Chi. Elder Ting went to Lin Chi and said, Master, what is the great meaning of the Buddha's teaching? Lin Shi came down from his seat. The teachers would sit on a seat that's higher. Lin Shi came off of his seat, grabbed Elder Ting by the collar, and slapped him. <laughs> and then pushed him onto his seat. Ting was stunned and just stood there motionless. A monk next to Elder Ting said, Elder Ting, why don't you bow? And then Elder Ting bowed like Davy. <laughs> and at that moment he bowed. He woke up. I love this story. So let's just break it down a little bit. So Lin Chi, um, he's fierce. I wouldn't want to step into a room with Lin Chi. I, I was doing koans with this one teacher in Japan, and the way it worked is you sit, and there isn't like a time for your interview. Whenever you feel you're ready to go for the interview, you bow, and you run out, and you go up <laughs> these thin stairs, and the interview room is upstairs of the room you sit in, which is tiny. It's a quarter of the size of this room, everyone hunched in and no heat. And you're not allowed to wear long underwear under your robes, and everyone's head's shaved, and it's really cold. <laughs> and this was April. And um, so, yeah, so uh, I think it was the second or third day I was there, the guy who kept going before me, every time he ran upstairs, he ran with this feeling like he got it. And then he would, I don't know what would happen, but you hear crashing... <laughs> Like you'd hear like things falling over and it was like they were having a fight upstairs and he'd come down all like with his robes all you know and then he'd sit down and like huffing and puffing <laughs> so it was like Lin Chi up there um, and if you if you read Zen stories you know this trope which is very common in the koan literature, where a student comes and asks a teacher a question like, 
what's the Buddha's teaching or why, you know, why the Buddha or, and, uh, it's not a vulnerable question. It's an intellectual question. So Elder Ting asked this question. And there's a saying, uh, it's like having a conversation in the weeds. If Lin Chi responded to that question, it would be a conversation in the weeds. You know? Like, oh, what's the Buddhist teaching? Oh, it's the Four Noble Truths. Oh, it's the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. You should know each foundation. But that's not the spirit that Lin Chi is looking for. So he set himself up in a way. Do you know, do you know what I mean by this? Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's always like uh, the question that comes just from books and intellectual understanding. It's always the beginning of our practices like this. We're really smart. We're really clever. We can like think our way through it. But like we're not here. We're all the way up here. All the Pima Chodron books beside your bed for years before you actually sit down. It's not the coffee table Buddhism. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a coffee table book on Buddhism where you opened it up and it slapped you? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh, that's a very interesting book. That's a book on Lin Chi. Yeah, this is a book about Zen practicing. And you opened it up. And <laughs> so Lin Chi can only respond as directly as possible, so he slaps him. I, I can't get away with that. <laughs> I avoided doing koan study with my teacher for many years because I thought it was too hierarchical and too violent. That, like, you have to go be vulnerable in front of the teacher. I thought that was bullshit. (laughs) And I came out of a different tradition. I came out of an insight meditation tradition. You don't really have that kind of relationship with the teacher, they're just your friend. But then I started to see that the slap is much more like pulling a toddler away from a busy street. It's more loving. Kids running out, you grab them by the back of the shirt. So Lin Chi comes down from his seat, grabs Ting, slaps him, pushes him away, and Ting's just standing there motionless. The part of the story that speaks to me and why I'm bringing it up is all of the unnamed Buddhas who show us how to practice. Who's the teacher in the story? It's not Lin Chi. The teacher in the story is the monk who's standing beside Elder Ting and says, Elder Ting, why don't you bow? It's that 
student next to you when you're sitting on your cushion and you're so frustrated and it's so hard. And then you can feel in the person next to you their bow and it's sincere. Or you forget uh, the order in Oriyoki and the person next to you makes the move. (laughs) And then you blink and you're awake. And all day in the city, all day in your family, there are Buddhas that you don't even see as Buddhas who are waking you up and showing you how to practice. And that's the power of Sangha. It's the power of community. So when you bow, you're paying respect to something deeper than your personality. It's a form but it's also an attitude. And it changes your alignment and it allows you to become more and more embodied in your practice. You might have noticed that we changed the translation of the... I changed the translation of the chant of the four vows. Um, And I took the last line from... uh, the last word from a translation I saw by Kaz Tanahashi that um, the awakened way is unsurpassable. Is that how it goes? Mm -hmm. I vow to embody it. Embodying each moment of retreat, each moment of your life, whether it looks like a vow or not. Oh, anxiety is here again. Oh, the darkness is back. This year, um, my hero is a 29-year-old named Edward Snowden. Hopefully, he's a household name. He had a really well-paying job in Hawaii, working as a contractor for a company that did work for the National Security Administration in the United States. Um, One day... Uh, he couldn't take it anymore that the American government was basically hoovering people's personal information. And that, but that, that's not what upset him. What upset him is that every day he was sitting in meetings with people his age who all knew this was happening and nobody liked it and nobody was saying anything. because they had good jobs. Uh, So uh, one day he flew to Hong Kong and he met with a Guardian newspaper from England and he started uh, giving them all the files. Some people say he's a traitor. Uh, Listen to what he says. As soon as the journalists were able to work, 
So this is when he handed everything to the journalists. Everything I'd been trying to do was validated. Because remember, I didn't want to change society. I wanted to give society a chance to determine if it should change itself. Um, then he went on to say, I'll paraphrase, but he went on to say that he has lots more and he's going to release it in a year. Then he said, all I wanted was for the public to be able to have a say in how they are governed. That is a milestone we left a long time ago. And then he, he was asked by the Washington Post, why do you feel entitled to bring NSA's intrusive activities to public attention? Here's what he says. That whole question is a question like, who elected you? And it inverts the model. They elected me. The overseers elected me. So he's talking about uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, Senator. Um, it wasn't that they put it on me as an individual that I'm uniquely qualified like an angel descending from the heavens, as they said it somewhere. He said, you have the capability and you realize every other person sitting around the office table has the same capability to be honest, but they don't do it. So somebody had to be the first. And then he said his aim was not to improve, uh, not to bring down the National Security Administration. It was to improve it. He says, I'm actually still working for the NSA right now. <laughs> they are the only ones who don't realize it. <laughs> the last question they asked him um, is, have you, have you um, defected now? Because now he's in Russia. He says... Uh, if I defected at all, I defected from the government to the public. So you know how every year, like it's the last day of the year and you have to pick your person of the year. I'm picking Edward Snowden. We all get messages all the time, like little voices, intuitions. But we're so busy up here, that we don't listen to them. One of the things some of you are seeing in your body is that if you're not listening, your body will start yelling at you. And you can do all kinds of things to keep the voices down. Overeat. You can overexercise. You can undereat. You can underexercise. You can try and control things and not listen, but only for so long. And then those voices will appear as symptoms in your body, in your heart, and blockages in your relationships. So Edward Snowden's teaching and the monk next to Elder Ting. Why don't you bow? Why don't you be honest? 
Why don't you be awake? So embodiment, when I say embodiment, it's the moment-to-moment experience of being awake from head to toe, from bone to skin. Every breath, with your whole body, your feet on the floor, your ass on the cushion. Even when it's really painful, for hundreds, thousands of years, when people have been um, trying to resolve this issue of suffering, they've sat down right in the middle of it. Dogen says, the Buddha way is entering awakening through practice. We finally got to the third section. Dogen says, the Buddha way is entering awakening through practice. When you practice, you will reduce your stress and reactivity. This was another theme that came up a little bit in in one of the meetings yesterday. But the most important thing is not that your reactivity is decreased. That's important. It's important your reactivity is decreased. But the most important thing is also that when you're caught in a reactive moment, that you can see it and then drop it. And I think we have these like idealized ideas of like being Buddhist or something or being like a yogi means like not having any reactivity. And if you're a parent, that's really dangerous because you want your ki- you want to model for your kids uh, a healthy emotional cycle. Like the most dangerous kind of parent is not always the abusive kind of temper tantrum parent. Sometimes it's the parent that's always happy. (laughs) Always happy. And then the kid has no model for what it's like to be real to be in different emotional cycles, to be pissed off and frustrated. One of the hardest things for me when my older son was young was putting on his snowsuit. It was the hardest, hardest thing for me. And now it's starting again. (laughs) I can't believe it. And I'm just as irritated as I was 10 years ago. Just at exactly the same level of irritation. I feel like I'm living in a nightmare again. Olin, come on, we're going to go outside. And, and so I like lie him down. He doesn't want it. First of all, he doesn't like being on his back. So when you change diapers, it's really hard not to do it on a back. As soon as you put him on his back, he starts freaking out. He turns around, he runs away. So like you get his arm in the snowsuit. And then you turn around to get like his little boot and he's gone <laughs> somewhere else. You know? Luckily, we have a life where you know, we don't have jobs and we don't have to get anywhere ever. <laughs> but if we had like a job or something, 
and we had to go places, <laughs> then it would be a disaster. So sometimes I sing to myself, like he's running away. I'm thinking, God, like we've got to get somewhere. And then Karina's like, it's okay, we don't have to get anywhere. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, we don't have to get anywhere. <laughs> so it's not that your reactivity has to decrease so much. It's that when you're caught, you have to be able to recover quickly. When you drop your chopsticks, you, you have to be resilient. You have to be able to recover. And what happens is if you don't have the training of meditative practice, it becomes harder to recover uh-huh. because uh, the blame comes in, the shame comes in, the guilt comes in. So guilt is I feel bad and shame is I am bad. And when that digs in, you can't recover so easy. And there are some qualities of people who are resilient. One of them is that they have deep internal resources. Another is they have a sense of humor. You fuck up and it's like, it's okay. There's a story I like to tell about this where, you know, when I first learned how to teach retreats, it was because I, I spent a lot of time co-teaching with, with uh, an amazing Vipassana teacher named Norman Feldman. And um, so he would train me as we were practicing. Anyways, uh, we would always have a break uh, after breakfast where him and I would meet in this cabin at a retreat center in Hockley Valley. Uh, we, we taught here once. Um and we would have tea together. Uh, and one year we were having tea and he was, he turned on the radio. He, he loves this little radio. And like his favorite thing in the day was while everyone was doing their work period, we would sit down, he would turn on his little radio. And just for like 10 minutes, he would listen to the news and drink tea. He had so much, you'd never imagine so much joy <laughs> just from doing this. And he was horrified to learn that there was a bombing in Mumbai where he had been just a few weeks earlier. Norman lives most of the year, at the time he lived most of the year in India. And it was the hotel he had stayed at just a few weeks earlier. So he was really upset. And we were listening to the radio and the news from the BBC coming in. And uh, then I looked at the watch and I realized, oh shit. The sit had already started. And we were in there listening to the radio. And I, I felt really bad. So uh, I said, we got, we got to go. And we came in. And, and the whole sit, I'm thinking, oh, my God. I'm, we're such terrible teachers. Everyone's like here sitting. It, this was a retreat for uh, 35 psychotherapists, which are the hardest group ever to teach. That and yoga teachers. <laughs> More on that another time. So anyways, and then, uh, so after that sit, I said to him, you know, the whole sit, I was just thinking, like, I felt so bad that we were, like, listening to the radio and they're on a retreat and it's, like, so embarrassing. And for him, it just, we were listening to the radio, the time went over, and so we forgot. <laughs> and we just went in. 
And it was just like he could recover from it. And in that moment, I really saw something in his practice that was so much more mature than my practice. I had like this whole analysis about like that. I won't even tell you. But anyways. So people who are resilient, uh, there's humor. There's also the ability to know when they need help. And I think this goes back to the Elder Ting story. To be able to sit down with a friend, with anybody, and say, um, I'm confused. I think one of the things for me in retreat that I watch in people that's like the most important shift is when the first few days of the retreat are always really hard. The first 24 hours. Your body's not used to sitting. The retreat's not the same as it was last time. You don't... And, and also, some of you, you come on retreat, you're comfortable here. But for other people, you've never been on a retreat or you've never been with this group of people. So you come in here and you think everyone's friends. And you're like the new person. Maybe that's going on. And the tendency is to turn the attention out and start seeing all the things that you don't like. Don't like this about the food. Don't like this about the schedule. Don't like this about Oriyoki. And the most important shift is after a day as you start to settle, you turn that attention here. What's going on for me? And that's how you help build resiliency. Because it's not about, if it's all about there, it's hard to recover, right? Like if you have a partner and they do something stupid, it's like if you're always focusing on them, it's really hard to recover from that. But if you can know, so this is what I mean by embodiment, in this instrument, you feel what's going on for me here. And then there can be some resiliency. Like that little voice. Why don't you bow? I hate bowing. I hate bowing. Somebody said. I grew up Jewish. And if you're Jewish, you're not supposed to bow ever to anything. Ever. Period. And that little voice just comes in and says, Oh, you hate bowing? Why don't you bow? <laughs> Or um, you, some people sometimes say, like, I have so much trouble in relationship. I'm just not going to be in relationship anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess where the healing is going to happen? The Buddha says the first noble truth is opening to dukkha. And a lot of people think, oh, yeah, well, that'll be great. <laughs> yeah I can do that when, when there's suffering I'll open to it <laughs> as if like you can feel good and open to suffering no <laughs> to embrace dukkha is to suffer actually So, 
when you're sitting and the pain comes, the grasping comes, the self-judgment comes, you can ask yourself, is this permanent? Is what I'm seeing real? If you're seduced by thoughts, you can bring in a more discerning awareness. Is, is following this thought leading to a wholehearted integrity? Or is taking an action based on this thought good for my family or good for my body? Or is it going to lead to pain? Or does it turn me into a commodity? When I feel bad about myself, who benefits? Can I give you a hint at the answer? Somebody who's making money off you. Or somebody who wants to have power over you. When you feel bad about yourself, that's the only person who benefits. Somebody who wants your money or someone who wants to keep you in their power? I just gave you the answer, but that's the answer. <laughs> I want to end with reading some of Dogen's own words. This practice is not made to happen by Buddha. It's accomplished by your own all-encompassing effort. Sometimes it's confusing because there's a Buddha at the front of the room. And you think, oh yeah, that's the Buddha. And Buddha is like a god. And if I just bow to Buddha, everything will be okay. But then you might start to notice that it's just wood. (laughs) Moreover, what practice calls forth is awakening. Your treasure house does not come from outside. How enlightenment functions is through practice. So if you turn the eye of enlightenment and reflect back on the realm of practice, nothing in particular hits the eye and you just see white clouds for 10,000 miles. This is such an interesting idea. If you turn the mind of awareness back to look at mind, all you see are white clouds for 10,000 miles. The thought is like a cloud. It's a little more than air. That thought, I hate my life. 
It's so real. And also, it's just a cloud. Just a cloud. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So I'll end with a poem. Uh, This is from one of my favorite poets named Jim Harrison. Uh, Jim Jim Harrison's... uh, um, writes amazing Dharma poems. Amazing. Um, he's like something like half Aboriginal, a quarter American, and a quarter Mexican or something. And uh, so he writes poems about all those tra- traditions. And uh, his closest friend is Gary Snyder. Um, and G- Jim Harrison became really popular for like a few years because he wrote a famous book that was turned into a movie. <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. Um, anyways, uh, but he writes really deep poems about meditation practice. and um, He's also like a raging alcoholic. And uh, if any of you ever buy the literary magazine called Brick, which is published in Toronto... Uh, the back section is always uh, food reviews, and he writes the food reviews. Um, but they're mostly written quite drunk. So it's really about like the experience of food through the digestion of alcohol. And then how he goes from there to writing meditation poems, I have no idea. It's really amazing. So uh, This poem is called Cabin Poem. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing. We could just stop there. Try practicing that. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing. Are, are any of you trying to like figure anything out? I came on retreat and I'm going to decide. I'm going to leave them. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless Thank you.